Well, let's study God's Word together. I hope you'll grab a Bible, um, if you've got one there handy, uh, and open it to John chapter 7, um, or you can grab a device, uh, iPad, iPhone, or whatever you got there, and, and open your Bible out, and I uh, always want to encourage you to do that. We try to get the Scripture on the screen for you, but, um, but it's always good to follow along there for yourself, especially if you've got a favorite translation. I'll be in the ESV, and we finished up a series um, last week on emotions, and so we're kind of in a little in-between time this week, and so I want to share with you today just a a message from John chapter 7 verses 37 through 39. We're going to talk about this idea of rivers of living water. That's what Jesus promises in our life for all those who believe in him in John chapter 7, rivers of living water. So let me ask you a question. What kind of Christian life are you experiencing? Think about that for a moment. If you were to describe your Christian life, how would you describe it? What's your experience like right now in this season at this time What's the Christian life like for you if you're a believer in Christ? Is it victorious or would you say it's defeated? Do you feel like it's life-giving or do you feel more spiritually exhausted? Uh, Do you feel empowered, right, to live the Christian life and to live victoriously, to live on mission? Or do you feel weak? Is Christ in your life making a noticeable difference in your attitude, in your actions? Are you experiencing spiritual growth and maturity? When Apostle Paul says things in Romans like, we are more than conquerors through Christ, is that you? Does it describe the Christian life that you're experiencing? You know, some folks aren't experiencing the Christian life that we see in the New Testament. Now, sometimes that's because they aren't Christians. <laughs> You know, that, that's sometimes people read, you read the New Testament, what it says about a believer and what it says the experience is supposed to be and, and all that, and, and they're not experiencing it. Sometimes it's because you're just not a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. People can be religious, even nice, even well-meaning, but not born again, but not born again. And sometimes that's the issue. Now, other people, there, I believe there are believers that maybe right now who simply aren't living in light of who they actually are in Christ in this particular season in their life. Here's the promise of the New Testament. Here's the promise of the Bible. And yes, here's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is this, new life, transformation, being more than a conqueror, having spiritual life power, vitality in your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's more than forgiveness. Maybe you remember the old slogan. Sometimes you would see it on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, and it would say, not perfect, just forgiven. Can I just say, I've never liked it. <laughs> I've never liked it. Not perfect, just forgiven. That, that's not a believer. You are not just forgiven. First of all, we should never say just forgiven. Uh, forgiveness is a huge deal. It's only possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But no believer on earth is just forgiven. You are more than forgiven. You're more than a conqueror. You have been given the Spirit of God. You have been empowered by the Spirit of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God. You're so much more than forgiven. Yeah, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect, but we're not just forgiven. That's an incredibly incorrect way to talk about the Christian life. But some folks, that's all they think about with their Christian life. It's like, I'm not perfect. I'm forgiven. And that... And it's a good thing I'm forgiven because I keep manifesting my imperfections over and over again and I feel defeated and and God has so much more for us. Today I want to share with you from the Gospel of John how you can take hold of Jesus' promise about rivers of living water and experience those rivers of living water in your life because believing should impact our living. All right, That's, That's kind of the big idea today. Believing should impact our 
living. So look with me at John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says in John 7, 37 through 39. On that, or the Bible says, on that day, the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. So here's Jesus talking. Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so Jesus here boldly stands and proclaims an incredible promise. He invites all to believe in him and promises them that the living water would flow living water would then flow from their heart. He says this is of the Spirit, John tells us. Jesus promises, in other words, that we will receive the Holy Spirit and that experientially this will be like rivers of living water flowing from the heart. It's an incredible picture of heart change and spiritual life, spiritual power and vitality. And it, it tells us that believing should impact our living, right? Because it's flowing from the heart. The wellspring of life, as Proverbs 4.23 says. Everything in your life is affected and impacted by your heart. And Jesus says, from the heart of the believer will flow these streams of living water. Now, three things from this text this morning that I think will help us understand and apply this text to our lives so that our believing more and more impacts our living. Three things here, okay? Number one, we need to recognize Jesus' timing. I want you to recognize Jesus' timing here in the text. There in verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day. That's when Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, what is that? He's giving you the context of what's going on here. The, the great feast that John is speaking of is the Feast of Tabernacles. Or it's also been called the Feast of Booths. It's also been called the Festival of Ingathering. And this was a big feast that they did that every... A big... A big big festival, every male was required to attend this one, okay? So every male uh, would come and would be, would be there for this. So huge, massive crowd, big, huge ceremony that lasted for seven days. And then on the eighth day, which was like a, a Sabbath day, uh, was kind of the, the, the culminating end there. And when he says, talks about the great day of, of that feast, uh, scholars differ on whether he's talking about the seventh day, the, the last culminating day, or, or the eighth day, that, that Sabbath day, right after the end of, uh, 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 of the feast. Uh, but either way, it's very important to understanding because it puts in context what Jesus says here about the living water and him offering this and giving this invitation. During this particular feast, Jewish people um, had a, uh, developed a tradition over time of a water pouring rite. And D.A. Carson notes this. I want to read to you from, uh, from D.A. Carson's work here because he so vividly paints the picture for us of what would have been taking place at this time. So follow along with me and excuse me while I read here. But this is what D.A. Carson says about, this, uh, about, this, uh, about the Festival of the Tabernacles and, what, and the water pouring rite that took place during that time. He says, on the seven, uh, seven days of the feast, a golden uh, flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in procession, led by the high priest, back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the uh, shofar, a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, were sounded. While the pilgrims watched, the priest pr uh, processed around the altar with the flagon, the temple choir singing the Hallel. Now, the, that's Psalms 113 through 118. They would sing those. They would go all the way through each psalm singing those. When the choir reaches Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook 
a willow and myrtle twigs tied. This thing was, it was this willow and, and myrtle twigs were tied together uh, with a palm. And he would shake that with his right hand, while his left hand would raise a piece of citrus fruit. Fruit. This was a sign of the ingathered harvest, and all would cry out, "Give thanks to the Lord!" Three times. The water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into the respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. I mean, quite a ceremony, right? Just a, this, this ritual that they would do um, each time they had this festival. Now, Carson goes on to note that in their day, this was related to both the Lord's provision of water in the desert, right? That was one of the things that they were thinking about. When they were stranded in the desert and God provided manna from heaven for food, he provided water from a rock uh, to quench their thirst so that there was that on their mind. And to the Spirit being poured out in the last days as prophesied in the Old Testament, that the Spirit would be poured out in those last days. He writes, quote, Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. It was what they were anticipating. It was what they were longing for whenever the Messiah would come. And this was a picture of that. So think of the magnitude of this, of this moment during this particular festival with all the men gathered. The, the thousands of people and, and the, the loudness and the clamoring and then, and then this beautiful ritual that you see taking place. And then Jesus uses this moment to reveal this truth as he stands up and he shouts out. And Jesus is saying this, all of this is about me. I am the water that gives life. I am the one who pours out the Spirit. Oh, you're thankful for physical thirst that was quenched in the desert, but I came to quench your spiritual thirst, a greater need that you have. And Jesus chose to do this. At this moment, he's claiming to be what the feast, what this feast was anticipating. He's saying, it's me. I'm the fulfillment of all of this. It's all about me. Thanks for coming to my party. Jesus chose this teachable moment to reveal this about himself. He's saying this, the point to the fact that he is the one that provides the living water. And the timing is important because it drives home Jesus' point. The event he chose to speak at was a living illustration, right? It, that people could see right there before their eyes. And it pointed to the fact that Jesus was exactly who they needed. He's the Messiah. It pointed to the truth that he's the one they've been waiting for and longing for for all these centuries. Now, Jesus' timing is never off. He knows how to take a moment and use that moment to point to our need for him. He knows how to do that. He does it here. In fact, in our day, I'm sure there are ways Jesus right now is revealing himself to folks in the midst of pain, suffering, challenges, difficulty, hopeless-seeming situations. He's using that moment to say, I'm the one you need. I'm the answer. Maybe you can think of times in your life where you were going through a dark moment, and God somehow chose to use that moment to reveal Christ to you and show you your need for him. He's always on time. He knows how to use these moments. No matter what's happening or no matter what isn't happening in your life today, just know Jesus can speak to that. He's relevant to that situation. He's the one we always need. When you look around our nation today, you know, and the, and the, and the sense of chaos that many of us may even feel and just uh, the, the, uh, the, the difficult challenges that we see before us and, the, and the, the, all the, the debates that we see having, uh, the political things that are going on, the, um, the social unrest that we see, the pandemic that we see, just all the things that we have in our nation seems very divided right now. And I would tell you, man, I, uh, we need to understand that, that Jesus would, would say to us that he is the one that we need. In the, in, in, could it be? 
that even in this season, even in this difficult time, that God would want to do an incredible work in our lives and through our lives for the glory of Jesus and draw people to himself. He, he loves to use incredible moments to say, I'm the one you need. Well, that's what he did in this moment. And it was pointing to the fact that this feast was always pointing to the Messiah and that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the second thing here is this. We need to respond to Jesus' invitation. I want you to recognize his timing, but I want you to, to respond to his invitation. It says, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Reminds us of Isaiah 55.1. In Isaiah 55.1, Isaiah writes, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So Isaiah invited people to the water. Jesus says, I have the water. I'm here. I'm here. I'm the one with the living water. Come to me and drink, right? Uh, and so it, Jesus is, is claiming to be the source of what you need, right? He, he's the one you need to come to. He's offering more than an invitation. He's also offering to be the answer. He offered a similar invitation to the woman at the well. A few chapters before this, in John chapter 4, we have a very familiar story of Jesus engaging there with the woman at the well. He's long day. Jesus is sitting there, he's waiting, he's thirsty. A woman is, comes up and she's, she's getting water from the well. She comes at a time of day that it would have been that, that most people weren't getting water. She kind of has a checkered history, a little bit of a past. Um, she's, um, she's been married a few times, it seems. She's living with a man that's not her husband at this time. And Jesus asked her if he would give her a water, uh, uh, some water to drink while she's, while she's getting the water. And she just seemed shocked that Jesus would even ask her. And this is what Jesus says to her in John 4.10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. <laughs> You're shocked that I'm asking you for water, but if you knew who I was, if you knew what I had to offer, you would be asking me and I would give you living water, right? He's inviting her, right? Inviting her to just ask and he would give her living water. So when you think about this, you, you see here Jesus offering an invitation here in John chapter 7. And I want you to notice the urgency of the invitation. It says Jesus cried out. He's shouting. He wants everyone to hear. He's saying this is important. This is not some small thing, right? It, it literally in the Greek means he shouts or he cries out. Because it, it, it's a crowded, possibly loud place. And Jesus is shouting out, hey, this is about me. I'm the one that you need. I, I Come to me and drink. It, it's, it's urgent because it's such a big deal because there's such a need there. Notice the inclusiveness of this invitation. He says, if anyone will come to me. He offers this to all. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your race or ethnicity. It doesn't, money, how, how much, how, it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what's in your past. It doesn't matter what you've done. If anyone will come to me, no matter what you've done, what your baggage is or your religious baggage, it doesn't matter. This invitation's for you. But notice it's also an exclusive invitation. It's inclusive. Anyone. It's exclusive. Come to me. Come to me, because you can only come to Jesus. He's the only one that you can come to and get the river of living water, the streams of living water flowing from your heart. He's the only one that can offer this. He's the only one that can satisfy this thirst that he's talking about here. He didn't say come to church. He didn't say come to political activism. He didn't say come to a more moral life. No, he says come to me. Only Jesus offers this. Only Jesus can satisfy. But notice there, there's a condition here. He says if anyone thirst and there it is to respond to this invitation you must be thirsty 
In fact, you'll never truly come to Jesus on his terms unless you first thirst. Thirst for what? Thirst for God. Thirst for God. Have you ever really gotten spiritually thirsty, realized your need for a Savior, been sick and tired of being sick and tired, and come to the end of yourself? You know, there are some things that will just make you thirsty. Pretzels. Salty potato chips, right? You eat enough of those things, you're, you're going to get thirsty. Or it's August in Orlando and you go outside to mow your lawn and if you've got to push more like I do, you'll be thirsty in a little bit. Or right outside our campus, if you go over to Lake Baldwin and decide to jog a lap or two around that lake, you're going to get thirsty. It's something. Or here's another one. If you just don't drink anything for a while, you don't really have to do anything. You can just abstain from liquids, right? Drink no water, Drink no glorious sweet tea. Drink no Coca-Cola. Like just drink nothing. Go all day and don't drink nothing. What will happen? You get thirsty, right? From the absence of having that, right? And we don't just walk around thirsty. If if I'm walking around drinking a gallon jug of water, I don't walk around thirsty. Thirst arises when there is need recognized, and we realize there's something missing that we need. A need is there, and we have a deep need to know God. Problem is, we walk through life not recognizing our need. And we might thirst for a lot of things. But apart from the Holy Spirit revealing our need for God to us, we don't thirst for God. And the only one who can quench that spiritual thirst is Jesus. Man's greatest need is to know God. But many don't recognize it because we're drinking from empty wells. People go to substances and immorality and pornography just trying to feel alive. Religion, morality, social activism, none of these things will work either. We need God. We need God. And we need to recognize our need for God. And if we'll come to Christ thirsty to know God, we can find God and we can be satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you respond to this invitation? Well, there's a condition there. He says, you got to drink. He says, come to me and drink. What does he mean? Well, the very next thing he talks about, he says, he who believes in me. So to, to drink is to believe, to by faith respond to Christ, to rest in and continue to rest in Christ, believing that he is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah, that he and he alone has died on the cross for your sin, paying your sin debt, that he and he alone has risen from the dead, that he and he alone is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and to put your faith and trust in him for forgiveness, for life, to connect you to God, uh, to to, to repair the separation between you and God and to connect you and to bring you into the family of God. And when you do that, when you believe, when you drink from the well that is the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be satisfied. And you will receive something, he says. You'll receive this this rivers of living water flowing from your heart. And that's the third thing. We need to receive and realize Jesus' promise. Receive and realize Jesus' promise. Verse 38, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. That's a promise. Now John tells us, he said, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we need to receive and realize, and we need to walk in Jesus' promise, and every single person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, gets this promise that out of his heart, he says, will flow rivers of living water. And what does that mean? John explains, that's the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through your life. Now, he says those who were believed in him, they they have not yet received. He says those who believed in him were to receive him. He says because he had not been given yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's what he's saying. He's not saying the Holy Spirit wasn't active and present and at work in the world. 
we, we say it this way, he, he, he had not yet come in new covenant power. The Spirit came in new covenant power when Christ came, the Messiah comes, lives a sinless life, dies on the cross for the sins of man, dies on the cross for my sin, for your sin, is risen from the dead, ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, and then Pentecost happens. Remember that? In Acts chapter 1 and 2, you can read all about that. The Holy Spirit comes in power at Pentecost. And, 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 and that's the reality that Jesus is talking about here, is the Holy Spirit coming into your life, indwelling and empowering and transforming your heart and life when you believe in him. The promise of Jesus is that if you believe, you get the Holy Spirit. If you believe, you will receive. And he will be like rivers of living water flowing from your heart. The work of the Spirit here is directly tied to the good news of Jesus. Okay, It's directly tied to the good news of Jesus. It's, all, it's, it's not like you graduate from one to the other or something like that. It's all directly tied together and you can see it. It's even right here in the text. Now, Jesus says this phrase, he says it'll flow out of his heart, um, as the scripture has said. Uh, now, so he says, all the, so what's he mean by that? What scripture is he referring to? What, what scripture did this phrase, that, that, that this will flow out of his heart like rivers of living water, what scripture is that? Well, there's, if you go search the Old Testament, there's not a particular verse that says that. So what Jesus is doing is he's summarizing the teaching of the Old Testament about this. That's what he's doing. And there's, there's lots of passages that denote this type of teaching about uh, with the idea of, of, of the Holy Spirit and of, of water. Let me give you one. Isaiah 58, 11 says this. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that makes that happen. And other places you could go, Isaiah 44, 3, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, Zechariah 13, 1. All of these scriptures are good references for this. Uh, D.A. Carson, who we talked about earlier, notes how there's a direct tie here, he believes, to Nehemiah 8 and 9 uh, and the Feast of the Tabernacle celebration there after Nehemiah uh, when they were rebuilding the wall. And so I encourage you, you can even turn there and look there. I mean, just G these are the things Jesus is pulling from here when he talks about here. And so in John 4, uh, you, you, if you go back three chapters we talked about the woman at the well um, in, in John 4 verses 13 and 14 it says Jesus said to her everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life so there it is again that idea of the spring of water in you Right, He says here, welling up to eternal life. In both texts, something happens in the one who believes. The spring of water welling up to an eternal life. And then here in chapter 7, the rivers of living water flowing from the heart. So here in chapter 7, Jesus is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer, in the life of the believer, and through the life of the believer, I believe, is what he's talking about here when he talks about this. It's a promise of satisfaction and provision. Our deepest needs to know God and to know forgiveness, and Jesus offers that, and, and through him, the Spirit of God takes up residence in our life. So it's a promise of that. It's a promise of heart transformation, right? He says these rivers flow out of the heart. Uh, we, talk, we talked about this earlier. Proverbs 4.23 um, talks about how it's the heart. It's the heart that all the issues of life flow from. Everything in your life is impacted by your heart. So here, the Spirit, we see the work of the Spirit is taking place in the heart and through the heart. It's, a, it's heart transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about 
how the Holy Spirit transforms us as we behold the Lord Jesus Christ and we're, we're made new. He does this by working on and transforming our hearts. That's the promise that we get in Christ when we receive the Spirit. And not only that, it's a promise of spiritual life. Notice these are living, running waters. Where there was once death, there's now life. The Spirit is alive and He makes us alive to God in Christ Jesus. Before Christ, we're dead. In Christ, now we have spiritual life because the the Spirit is in us and there's rivers of living water flowing through our life. It's a promise of of spiritual purity. These living waters, man, they're purifying waters. The Spirit cleanses us from the inside out. He, he, He makes the impure pure. He makes the unclean clean. In fact, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. The Apostle Paul gives, in the first couple of verses, nine, or in verses 9 and 10, he gives this list of sinners, right? There could be any of us. Just this list of sinners of all these types of sins. And then he says, and such were some of you. And one of the most beautiful phrases in the New Testament, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's a a purifying, purifying stream that flows through our lives. And it's it's a promise of spiritual power. Spiritual power. Think of the power here like a like a flowing river. We know water can be a powerful thing, right? Whether it's a, a raging river or an ocean tide. If you've ever been whitewater rafting or seen whitewater rafting, or a running river can be a powerful, powerful thing. And this is a picture of spiritual power. Jesus even said in Acts 1-8, right? When you receive the Holy Spirit, right? His power would come upon us. We would receive power. We receive the Spirit. We receive power. And then Jesus said we would be his witnesses. And that's another thing. It's a promise, I believe, of spiritual impact. Some people think Jesus here is speaking primarily to the impact believers should have on others. In other words, this flows out of, right? That, that, they really focus on the idea that, he's flowing, that it flows out of the heart of the believer. And I think that can be taken too far, and you can overpress that. I don't think that's the, the primary thing that he's talking about here. But certainly, the Spirit of God impacts how we interact with others. He makes us his witnesses, as Acts 1.8 says. He empowers us for the mission of God. He empowers us to be salt and light. He empowers us to live to the glory of God. He bears the fruit of the Spirit in our life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All in all, we have a powerful picture here of the work of the Spirit of God in and through the life of a believer. And this is the Christian life. This is what Jesus is talking about, a life of transformation, a life of purity, power, and impact. This is what happens to those that come to Jesus and drink, that come to Jesus and believe and rest in him. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper, right? He helps us. He helps us. John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What are you talking about, Jesus? How could it be to our advantage that you go away? He says, "For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why is it to the church's advantage for Jesus to ascend to the Father? Because when that happens, the Spirit comes. When the Spirit comes, he's not just hanging out. He's indwelling you. He's empowering you. That's the promise of the Christian life. Let me ask you, are you experiencing this? Does this sound like your Christian life? Now, some don't because, well, they've never come to Jesus and responded to his invitation by turning from their sin and believing in Christ. They've tried to add Jesus on to their life, but they've never truly come to Jesus thirsty for God, realizing that only he has the water that they seek. You believe, and then you receive. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you receive this promise. And the Spirit takes up residence in your life, and the transformation and the empowerment begins. 
Can I just invite you, if you never have, maybe, you, maybe you've drinking from every dry well this world has to offer right now. Maybe your life has been just search after search after search, looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment, looking for peace, looking for joy. And can I just tell you what you really need is God. What you really need is God. And maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart right now and just saying, you need God, maybe you tuned in for the first time today and you have no idea why you happen to stop on Facebook or YouTube or whatever and check this out. And this is why, because you need God. Are you thirsty? Jesus says, if you'll come to me and if you'll drink, he told, he told the one woman at the well, he says, you'll never be thirsty again. He says here, rivers of living water are going to flow from your life, but you've got to come to Jesus, confess your sin, admit your need for him, that you're a sinner separated from him, deserving of the just judgment of God, but believe that God loves you and that he sent Jesus to die in the, your place on the cross, to live the sinless life you can't live, to die in your place on the cross, to be resurrected from the dead, and that if you'll turn away from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him as your savior, as your only hope of heaven, he'll transform your life. If you'll believe, you'll receive the life Jesus promises here, uh, of transformation, in your heart and life. Come to Jesus. Experience the Holy Spirit in your life. Come to the real Jesus. Experience the reality of the Holy Spirit in your life. However, how many believers today aren't walking in the full realization of what is ours in Christ? Oh, maybe you have at times, but maybe you're in a different season right now. You, you feel dry. You feel defeated. The Christian life has started feeling heavy and toilsome and tiring to you. You know, where I grew up, uh, there was a... Um, in uh, I grew up in the northwest Alabama area, real close to the Tennessee River. And over in the Muscle Shoals, Sheffield area, uh, there is a large uh, water dam there called Wilson Dam. They're owned and operated by the Tennessee Valley Authority. And uh, just massive thing that I used to just, I, I was terrified to drive over that thing, especially when I was a teenager because it was like this narrow. But it's this big, powerful dam. Or maybe when you think of a dam, maybe you think of Hoover Dam out west. Or maybe you think of the little dams that beavers build to create their little ponds and, th and things of that nature. But you, when you envision that, whatever you envision, what, what is happening there is the water is being manipulated. It's being dammed up and controlled so that it will not do what it normally does or what it would naturally do. It's being inhibited. The natural order of things is being disrupted. Now, let me be clear. The Holy Spirit of God will not be manipulated by you or by me. He's God. He's all-powerful. We're not. I don't want to press this too far either because ultimately if the work of the Spirit is not happening in our lives, it can be an indicator that he's not in our life. So let me be clear about that. But I do want to make the point that we can and do at times hinder his work in and through our lives. Not so much of the New Testament. That's why you're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To walk in the Spirit. If it just came natural, would Paul feel the need, would the writers of the New Testament feel the need to urge us to yield to the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, if it was just so natural? No, because we have a sin nature, and we tend to rebel, and we tend to push back, and we tend to resist. We can succumb to the flesh instead of being filled with the Spirit and refuse to cooperate with His work in our life, and it slows down the sanctification, the spiritual growth and empowerment in our life, and we don't experience the spiritual power that we should experience. That's ours in Christ. We can fail to experience the fullness of the work of the Spirit of God in and through our lives. And I think there are a lot of people watching today that are not experiencing that. 
The Bible in particular talks about two things believers do. It says we can quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, the Apostle Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. And there, it's in context, it seems most directly related to spiritual gifts. Quenching seems to have to do with not being open to or, e- or even forbidding, despising uh, some things, uh, ref- refusing to cooperate with what the Spirit is trying to do in and through you and others and re- resisting, in a sense, or quenching the Spirit in that way, putting out the fire of the Spirit, you might say. Or we can grieve the Spirit, the Bible says. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 4.30. He says, do not and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It means to make sorrowful, to make sad, to distress, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He goes on to say in verses 31 and 32, tells you kind of some ways you can grieve the Holy Spirit. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So in context, Paul says it's how we relate to one another and sinning against one another. These are, you know, he's saying you can affect what's going on with the Holy Spirit in your life with choices you make and the things we choose to surrender to and give ourselves to. When we don't bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, when we give into the flesh, when we refuse to operate in the gifts that God has given us, when, when we who are spirit-led, according to the Bible, refuse to follow the Spirit's leading into the path of God's Word. We may quench, we may grieve Him, and we're not yielding to His work in and through our lives. And we will not experience the fullness of the Christian life that we are, that is ours in Christ. Let me ask you, as a believer, are you experiencing the kind of life, are you experiencing the kind of life and transformation, purifying work, the kind of empowerment and impact on others that rivers of living water flow living water flowing from your heart would seem to indicate if not are you hindering the spirit's work in your life with some sort of some type of spiritual dam in your life can i invite you to tear it down to remove patterns and attitudes and habits and sins in your life that may be hindering god's work in you and through you and robbing you of the joy and the contentment the victory the obedience the impact that can all be yours through Christ? Repent. Confess. Get in the word of God. Come back to Jesus and drink and look to him in faith and be satisfied in him. Be filled. and Do not settle for anything less. No version of Christianity that's anything less than what God has promised you in Christ Jesus in his word. You don't have to be captive to any sin. You can know freedom and life and joy and victory and obedience. Maybe you need to respond to Jesus' invitation today and receive, receive forgiveness of sin. Maybe you need to respond to his invitation by believing on Christ so that you receive the Spirit of God in your life. Believing should impact our living. Is it impacting yours? And if you're a believer today, is it still impacting yours? Is the Spirit of God working in and through your life in all the ways that he wants to? Are you yielded to him? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, that he resides in the believer, that he works in and through believers, and that when we were far from you, Lord, he, he convicted us and drew us to you, and, uh, and Lord, when we believed in Christ, uh, he came to take up residence in our lives. I pray right now for anyone watching, Lord, that if they don't know Christ, that they would that they would choose right now to turn away from sin and receive Christ as Lord and as Savior, that they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And I pray for every believer 
in Christ right now, Lord, that we would experience the fullness of what it means to walk with Christ, to know Christ, and to, and to have these rivers of living water flowing out of our heart, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit's activity in and through our lives. I pray if there's things that we've got in our life that are impeding the work of your Spirit, Lord, that we would confess, remove those things and, and cooperate, yield to your Spirit and cooperate with what you want to do in our lives. And we pray that all this would be so in our church, in our community, for the glory of Jesus and for our own good spiritual health. In Christ's name, amen.